Shot the Oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, The Bum House, covering every film directed by Robert Eggers. We will fully spoil today's film, The Lighthouse, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. You know, I feel a great kinship for these gentlemen. Locked on a rock, wasting away in the middle Mm. of the ocean, you know, (laughs) slowly losing your mind. I can relate. Mm. I can. I can relate. (laughs) I know you're talking about being on an island, but I felt that watching this movie post-quarantine, the middle chunk of it in particular, hit a little bit differently than it did the first time I saw it. That's true. When they're just, like, there for forever. Yeah. Yeah, when they don't know when they can leave. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, it's definitely, like, a film about isolation. That didn't even occur to me was the, the COVID angle. Today I'm doing especially well because we're honored to have a special guest. Please welcome mm-hmm. Levi Adkins. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. So, Levi, had you seen this movie and or The Witch before? I have seen The Lighthouse before. This is the third time I watched it. Okay. So I'm a little anxious that my analysis is still like not going to be good enough even after three times of watching it. It's like, still don't quite get that and that and that. But I'm pretty sure I know what that was about. But anyway, I did not see The Witch, but it did. uh, I I knew some people who really liked it. And just from the the trailer and, you know, the the promotional material, it looked like The Lighthouse is like very visually striking and super interesting. But no, haven't seen it yet. Do you watch horror movies? No, no, I really don't watch horror. And which is is The Witch horror, basically. yeah, yeah. I, you know, I could maybe be down for like an artsy horror flick if that's what this Mm -hmm. is, but it really just isn't my genre. I like thriller, which I would consider The Lighthouse to be like a thriller. Psychological thriller is, you know, a categorization, which I think is fair for this film. That I'm down for. Horror, just not so much. I really haven't seen that much of it. Yeah. Nor do I have that much of like a, like a draw, you know, like Mm -hmm. Thor. I think he was really into that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thor, past oh, yeah. past and future guest Thor yeah. has been on several horror episodes. Shout out to Thor, the horror king. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I definitely would not call this The Lighthouse a horror movie, but I'm not sure what genre I would call it. I mean, art house flick, I think, is also kind of fair. It's a little, like, arty, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think psychological thriller. I mean, I, I want you guys to drive drive the ship here. But one thing that I would love to talk to you guys about before the podcast is over is just your interpretation of like what happened in the movie and then oh, what yeah. does the movie mean? Yeah. Because that mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is, is something that's of interest to me. Yeah. I feel like this is going to be one of those ones. The bulk of it is going to be almost like a spoiler special <laughs> where yeah. we've just got to sort of decompress on what is actually happening in this. Movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what are the very brief stats on this movie before we get into the discussion, the the symbological discussion of this behemoth? So today we're talking about The Lighthouse, released October 18th, 2019 by A24. The second film directed by Robert Edgars, written by him and his brother Max Edgars. 
The score is by Mark Corvin, who also did the score for The Witch. Runs one hour and 49 minutes. Made $18 million on a budget of $4 million. So pretty good, but about half of what The Witch did. And was critically acclaimed at the time, nominated for Best Cinematography at the Oscars and the BAFTAs that year. Emmett, how would you... How would you describe the plot of this movie to anyone who hasn't seen it? I would love to hear it. Okay, two men, one played by Robert Pattinson, one played by Willem Dafoe, are the keepers of a lighthouse off the coast of New England. They are dropped there for what I believe is a a four-week tour at the Mm. lighthouse. At first, basically, Robert Pattinson's character, Ephraim, is very new to he's never been a lighthouse person before willem defoe's character thomas has done it many a time before he's an old man of the sea but robert pattinson is more from the logging industry which is an interesting thing as it goes on robert pattinson's character feels more and more paranoia he thinks that uh willem defoe is trying to drive him crazy and maybe murder him He also confesses to his own terrible crime of murdering his foreman on his last job. Over the night that he confesses to his crime, the ship that is coming to get them after four weeks misses the island in a storm. And they wake up the next day miserably hungover and also to find that they are they are for an indefinite further period after the four weeks they've already been there alone on the rock. Things begin to get very weird. And eventually, Robert Pattinson goes berserk, murders Willem Dafoe with an axe, and then falls down all of the stairs of the lighthouse and dies. How much of that is real in the last 25 minutes of the movie is entirely up for debate, both on and off this podcast, probably forever. Yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Levi, the lighthouse, flopper Bob. It's a bop. Yes. It's a bop for me. It's a bop. Hell yeah. Wade, flop or bop? A bop for me as well. I really love this movie. I, it was my favorite movie of 2019. I was telling Levi before we started that I feel like in 2019 when this movie came out, there was a lot of other sort of adventurous genre stuff. Maybe from A24, especially the last few years, I feel like mm. there's been your Midsommars, your mm. The Green Knights, your Usses. Mm. So at the time, I feel like I took it a little more in stride. And rewatching it this time, I was like, this is probably the weirdest movie that has ever been greenlit. (laughs) It is so bizarre compared to every other movie. Yeah, and I love it a lot. So I meant Flopper Bob. It's such a bop. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. It is a bop alone on on the time that Willem Dafoe curses Robert Pattinson for five straight minutes. Mm. And you think I'm exaggerating. And then go back and watch it because he does it. It just goes on and on. Incredible. How did that moment strike you when you watched it for the first time? Because for me, like, I I was laughing out loud at the scene. Yeah. But it was like sort of a split reaction where I was like, this is great. He's delivering the text like so beautifully and so well. Mm -hmm. But he also like, in my opinion, clearly like there's a choice to like pause in crucial moments and then just keep, you know, propounding forward in such a way that it comes off as pretty funny and you really get a sense of how long he's been talking. But yeah, it was just like absurd and made me really laugh when I watched it. I don't know if it struck you guys the same way. 
I was much more into this movie as a comedy this time around. Mm, yeah. I was like, this movie is so damn funny. Mm-hmm. This movie gets it. The first time I think I was like having one of those moments where I was like, I could not believe what I was seeing mm, when he yeah. just yeah. goes on yeah. and on. And and like you say, Levi, with those pauses where you're like, oh, he has to be done. And he, then it yeah. keeps going and you're yeah, just like, yeah. and it's so good. Like, it's all so good, but it is preposterous that it just yeah. keeps going for that long. Yeah. Well, I want to say, I think the comedy is intentional because I had read that, um, Eggers thought the witch was like a little pretentious, I believe was his mm. own word about it mm. when he was in screenings of it, that there is like nary a joke in the entire thing. Mm. That is true. <laughs> Truly no <laughs> levity whatsoever. Yeah. So I think that was his goal. And that's part of one of the many things I love about this movie is that like on paper, like this is a movie in a square aspect ratio mm-hmm. in black and white. <laughs> That's like a period piece about the 1890s. Yeah. So it's like this thing is probably going to be a snooze fest. (laughs) And then when you actually watch it, it's like filled with fart jokes and like all of this odd couple situational comedy between Mm. the two of them. Mm. Yeah. And is also like so incredibly horny and is like just way more approachable than I think you think at first blush. So, yeah. The pacing of it, too, especially. You thought um, it was up pace for, for what it was billed as? Well, that's an interesting thing about this movie. I do think this movie kind of has an endless quality when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it ever feels slow to me. Okay. Like, I never feel like any of the scenes drag right. or yeah. were really, like, languishing in any of the moods or anything. Yeah, it's kind of hard to put my finger on. I, I don't think it's slow and I'm not bored. My mind doesn't wander, mm-hmm. but I am aware that they're really taking their time. But I'm also aware that like they're being very skillful at taking their time. Some of that mm-hmm. is like the sound design with like the blaring horn and stuff like mm-hmm. that, the fog horn. You watch Robert Pattinson complete so many tasks that you usually don't watch. Like that stuff gets edited out. But like you watch him like take the shingles off and like, you know, do his wheelbarrow thing. And like you just watch kind of the whole job get done, Mm. you know, that it's interesting. It feels like it's very deliberate pacing and it's not quick, but it's not boring either. Which seems like both something that comes out of the like physical reality of shooting with that old equipment. Like, you have to do longer shots with practical effects. Hmm. And, like, it's so much more of a pain in the ass to set up a new shot and, like, figure that out than it is to just figure out how to play the scene well across one setup. And that length, that kind of boring bit. I don't know if you ever get this feeling, but, like, when you're reading a book and you know the character has some menial task to complete... And then you get bored and don't want to read the book anymore. And it's so dumb because, of course, the author is not going to usually describe the menial task to you. You can Mm. go and, like, if you actually read it, the next thing that happens is author almost nine times out of ten. They'll skip ahead to the next event that happens. But if you are imagining yourself, you're identifying with the character, you're like, oh, wait, no, like, I don't want to do, like, that long, boring part. In Harry Potter, if they end a chapter talking about the homework that they have to do... And so there is something, even though the movie is less than two hours long, it increases its durational quality by Mm. those shots where you see Robert Pattinson having to do the whole damn thing where we would so often cut away and just, yeah. I do think part of it too is that like the scenes are pretty straightforward 
for the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. But those like menial tasks are often where the supernatural disorienting aspects of the movie are generally mm-hmm. sort of like intercut and told silently in like little individual moments. So that's like also propelling, I guess, the mystery forward in this interesting way Mm. where you're sort of cutting between like flashes of really weird things happening and then like scenes of two men having dinner together Mm. where they're kind of figuring out their power dynamic in some ways. Mm -hmm. To that point, Mm -hmm. we all love it. What is going on in this movie? I'm really, really, really excited to talk about this part. (laughs) (laughs) Can I give my answer first? Yeah, kick us off. So let me just start by saying that I I do think that this is one of those movies that is like just wide open for like lots of interpretations. Mm-hmm. And I think that my my initial interpretation, I'm kind of a little precious about it personally. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to give it up. That's how it struck me at the first, you know, it makes sense to me. But it's like, I also can see like a ton of other ways of viewing the story. So let me just lay out what I think are like the, the facts of the story that hopefully okay. maybe most agree is uh, uh, viewers will agree on okay, that cool. like this is like yeah. factually what took place in the story and then okay. maybe talk about significance so factually okay well actually i'm not gonna like do the boring part of the the initial plot but this is what happens this guy robert pattinson young man he's a logger he's a logger with a sordid past perhaps a criminal past he's working in this logging company in canada under a foreman named winslow whom he resents because winslow abuses him verbally calls him a dog et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He has an opportunity to save the guy's life. He's actually considering killing the guy, looking at the back of his head and thinking and talking to himself, saying like, all it would take is just like one stroke of this, you know, whatever tool I've got in my hand. And then at that very moment, he slips. I'm unclear on the mechanics of this guy's death. I don't know if he falls into a river or if he falls into some machinery or something like that. I'm just not familiar with what. I think he falls into a log flow. So it's like logs in the river, but there's mm. a, it's like, logs all the way across the river so that people could like walk across them right but he gets fallen and like crushed up in I the see. logs i see i think he falls in and then he turns around and calls for thomas's help young uh-huh. thomas robert's help uh-huh. and he doesn't do anything he lets the guy die so he's sort of like passively has the guy's blood mm-hmm. on his hands mm-hmm. my interpretation and reading of the film is that the lighthouse and the island is this guy's psyche Now, this is like, this is sort of said in the film by uh, Willem Dafoe. He actually says to the younger character, like, for all you know, I'm probably a figment of your imagination. And this island is probably Mm -hmm. a figment of your imagination. I buy that reading. I buy that reading. Oh, interesting. So to me, this whole experience is like something that's happening in its head. And it's just a metaphor, kind of like crime and punishment of just like the self-torture, the guilt and the delusions that come as a direct result from like transgressing this untransgressible line of of murder or passive murder or whatever. And I actually think you see that play out in a couple different beats with the seagull. Like when he kills the gull, I think that's another cycle and beat of him transgressing that untransgressible line. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is like we pan up to the top of the lighthouse, the wind changes, the storm comes and it just like blows this place to bits, which I think works with like the psyche metaphor of like the storm being like guilt and all this kind of stuff. I also kind of think that maybe this isn't even a hot take at all, but they're the same person, Thomas and Thomas. In the script, they're called old and young. They're not Mm -hmm. given a name. And so I kind of think that Willem Dafoe is, for lack of a more sophisticated term, 
the conscience of Robert Pattinson. And part of the reason why I think that's his conscience, like that, to me, that reads on a couple different levels. One is that Willem Dafoe's character keeps a a logbook of his behavior and specifically Mm. his poor behavior. So he's always watching him and he's like recording him saying like he's given to self-abuse in the shed, you know, criticizing his shortcomings. And that I think is kind of like up for debate as to whether or not he is doing a bad job or whether or not Willem Dafoe's character is kind of just like a slave driver and like nothing's ever going to be good enough for him. Mm-hmm. But either way, I think that metaphor works. Like, cause you, we know how we berate ourselves and perhaps we're not fair with ourselves, you know, yeah, perhaps yeah. we do that kind of thing. So I think anyway, just to wrap up this longer monologue, I think they're the same person. And I think he's basically like the conscience, all that stuff that we see, like this weird bromance where they almost kiss and then they fight. I think that also works on the psyche analogy where it's like self-love and self-loathing and like this just like complicated relationship with your own identity. But anyway, more on that, but I want to hear what you guys generally thought about your interpretation on first or second watch. On my first watch, it's hard for me to remember exactly, but I will also just say in general, it seems like definitely not always, but in general, I feel like, Emmett tends to take the most realistic interpretation of what we see happening in a movie. And I tend to take like the most supernatural Hmm. explanation of what we were seeing in a movie. So I think my initial read on this was that Pattinson is trapped in some kind of loop. Hmm. Uh, And I bring this up because it's not entirely what I still believe watching it this time. Mm -hmm. I caught in a lot of other things, but I think my initial read is that Pattinson is the previous wiki, which Defoe knows that he was there working before a different version of him. Mm -hmm. And he went mad and failed whatever test he has to overcome. And now he has been brought there again, but he still kind of like fails the test in killing the seagull Mm -hmm. and making things worse for them and ending up dead again. That was my initial read. I still believe aspects of that, but I think as I have both read more theories about this and watched it several more times, even like last night, I definitely cued into some more things that I hadn't Mm -hmm. thought about before, Mm -hmm. including from the realism angle of like what is actually happening minus the superstition in these scenes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Emmett, what was your sort of take about it? I'm really interested in Levi's symbolic read on the his conscience id versus e- ego, super ego sort of thing going on there. But on like the most realistic level, like you said, what we know happens is that Defoe had a wiki before and that wiki died and it may or may not have been Defoe's fault. Mm-hmm. We're not sure about that, but like you can draw... You can draw some sort of suspicion, at least, from the film. The film at least wants you to have the suspicion that he could have killed him. We see that person's head in a crab pot. It is not Robert Pattinson. This is not to negate the idea that it could be some cycle, like, whatever. But, like, in the realistic version of this, it is another dude who was killed. Robert Mm -hmm. Pattinson, at that point... Knowing that he himself has committed either a crime or something something in the morally gray area, at least, of not saving the guy, is like, oh, geez, it is me and this other guy who might be even more morally suspect than I am on this island. He begins to get paranoid as he, like, deteriorates. They're drinking. He might have a drinking problem. They start drinking kerosene. 
which is not alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mixed with honey, right? Mixed yeah. with honey, yeah. which would really just kill you and probably make you very crazy first. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that's what happens. Robert Pattinson eventually loses it completely, is certain that Thomas is going to kill him. So he kills him first with the axe at the end, really is just like completely sloshed drunk falls down the steps of the lighthouse just because he's kind of like lost his mind and his depth perception and mm. like things have gotten so bad mm. that is like the most realistic version to me of what happens that's not necessarily what i think absolutely happens and i also think that the movie is even if that is like all that really happens i think the movie is more than that so, like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, re- like, reduce it to just what I literally think happened. Mm-hmm. But I think that even, like, all of the weird imagery with the tentacle and, like, with Willem Dafoe as Poseidon at the end there when he, like, holds him and has him with, like, the beam of light on him could all kind of fit into that narrative of the two men losing their minds, like, as they drink this very bad liquor on the island with each other. Yeah. Both with guilty consciences over real crimes that they committed in the past. Yeah. I totally think that reading works. Like I said, I think there's a lot of really valid readings of this. I'm glad you mentioned that imagery of like the, the light beaming Willem Dafoe. If I'm not mistaken, there are two separate images. The Poseidon image is when he's got him down on the ground and he's like punching him. And like every time he pulls the fist back, it's a different person. First it's Ephraim and then it's the mermaid. And then it's this like weird Poseidon creature. And then it's back to regular dude. Then the second image that you're referring to, I'm really glad you brought it up because I swear I saw this exact identical image on like a thumbnail for a psych YouTube video, like a psych 101 or something like that. Anyway, to describe the image, it's like this sequence where Robert Pattinson like sees a body that's kind of toppled over and he goes to investigate, he turns the body over. It's, it is himself. It's Robert Pattinson again, kind of like that Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader moment. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's a hand that lands on the middle Robert Pattinson and he turns around and there is in the nude, Willem Dafoe in this like sort of striking semi-athletic pose and he's staring down at Robert Pattinson and there's like a beam of light coming straight from his eyes and illuminating Robert Pattinson's face and it struck me in the movie I was like what the heck is that about like that's clearly something right yeah but I don't know what and then I swear I saw it like on a thumbnail like I said of like a psych 101 thing and I got all excited I was like oh what is this is this like some sort of like famous art piece that's like referenced in psychology discussion and stuff I've scoured the internet for it. I can't find it. I don't know if you guys it is, know anything It about is it. based on a painting. Okay. Although the painting is kind of different. What's the painting? The painting is of just one man, kind of a younger man, in the Robert Pattinson position. Mm-hmm. Although there aren't two of him. And in the painting, that man is completely nude. Mm. And then there is like another imposing muscular man wearing pants looking at him and beaming the light onto him. wow interesting yeah interesting interest so i think that's the inspiration although it's definitely not like exactly sure yeah well and I, and I think there there's significance in like reversing the nudity of those characters there's a lot of like masturbation and like mm-hmm. sexual shame you know um that's like yeah kind of in in the story and sort of Absolutely. talked about um so i'm sure that that's not by accident okay this is a, it's called hypnos it's by Schneider from the early 1900s, according to this. Early 1900s, okay. Is there like a quick blurb on like the significance of it or anything? 
Oh, whoa. No, it uh, just says it's the symbolist artist Sasha Schneider. Mm, okay. His painting Hypnosis. Cool. I did read in an interview that uh, the director like specifically referenced that painter Schneider like in and um what it is in symbolism. Yeah, mm-hmm. symbolist painting. He talked about how that that was a big inspiration for the film. That totally makes sense cuz that's like all in that 1890s which is that same era like the 1890s to the 1920s. Um, which is that same era of film that's like a big that german impressionist film sort of thing is like very connected to the surrealist in the theater world so that like totally all makes sense that image is incredible too of the Mm -hmm. yeah of the guy holding the naked dude to me too i mean like obviously at the very end that image of robert pattinson with his liver getting eaten by the birds is a direct Mm -hmm. just one for one reference to prometheus in Mm -hmm. greek mythology who is eternally having his liver eaten by vultures for stealing fire from the gods and bringing it to humanity which of course fire from the gods bringing it to humanity is tied into the idea of this unattainable light at the top of the lighthouse that Mm -hmm. he's always trying to go and get to and there's this other kind of more domineering and godlike figure stopping him from getting it so it could be willem dafoe as the old gods even in some versions of christianity it's like old testament god needs new testament jesus to come and temper things out so that humans can exist in the world because Hmm. the gods are terrible and there has to be like an intermediary which like prometheus Hmm. is an intermediary and jesus is also an intermediary in a in a similar way yeah 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 no i'm glad you brought up the greek mythology the Prometheus image did land on me on the first viewing. There were some other Greek references that I think kind of like took some time to brew. And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's kind of like that. What was interesting for me is I definitely think there was some Sisyphus going on there. Uh, mm. Most particularly when he's like dragging that heavy barrel up the spiral staircase yeah. and then he immediately has to take it back down. Mm-hmm. There's a very Sisyphean like cycle of all of his work just like going to pot. Like nothing is good enough. Yeah. Nothing is. Yeah. All of his work is futile. Yes added insult to injury like uh, as soon as he gets to the top with that big oil drum he's like you should have used the small can and you're like ah and he's like now take it back down you're like ah yeah but i was interested to see that the director didn't reference sisyphus although i have to think that that was intentional like going on his mind but he did reference another mythological character who i was not previously acquainted with called proteus Mm-hmm. Proteus is like this old man of the sea character who knows everything past, present, and future, but he doesn't like to share those details with people. And you and you have to like hold him down. And the other thing about Proteus is he's a shapeshifter. So he can like change form and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which learning that Willem Dafoe's character is the Proteus character and Robert Patton's yeah. character is the Prometheus character. But learning that sheds some light on that scene that we previously discussed where every time he pulls his hand back, it's a different person. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was trying to come up with like a reading of that. Like, was he like conflating all these people into one person and like projecting mm-hmm. all their qualities? Like, I don't know. So uh, when I watched it this last time, when that that scene happens, I was like, oh, has... Defoe been the mermaid the whole time Mm, mm -hmm. like adding into sort of the sexual nature of this story gotcha has Defoe in another form slept Uh, with Pattinson yeah and that's something Pattinson is like discovering in that moment Mm, maybe so yeah 
along with that Prometheus imagery too, I just want to point out that he's blind at the end when yes. we see him dead. Yeah. The seagull who's haunting him, who he kills is blind. Mm-hmm. And the head he finds is blind. Yeah. One-eyed. The seagull. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, I, and I think the head he finds is one-eyed too. Yes. That's and I guess we can only see one when he's dead, but it's not totally clear. Hmm. And all of that is connected with versions of prophets from all across all right 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 but to pair things back a question i want to ask is if we were to look at the most realistic version of this where there is nothing supernatural happening Mm. do you guys think that defoe is telling the truth and pattinson is really losing his mind and losing track of time and because like when he reads that that diary, those are all true things about him. Like mm-hmm. he has been sneaking off in the shed. He is drunk on duty. Now certainly those things reflect on Defoe more than he's letting on. But mm-hmm. but do you think that's what's happening, or do you think that Defoe is lying and manipulating him the whole time and trying to keep him underneath him in their power dynamic by confusing him about his background mm-hmm. and the time and place and everything else? It is hard. It is a hard call because in the moments when they wake up and he says, missed the ship two weeks ago, mm-hmm. yeah. it seems like there's a moment where Defoe chooses to tell him that mm. instead of the truth, maybe? I don't know. There, it's like It seems like it's a very deliberate choice to tell him, to say that. Like he's been saying other stuff first and then he decides to bring out that was two weeks ago. So I don't believe Defoe. I think Defoe is trying to get one up on him in this fight. And I think that it is him lying that causes Robert Pattinson to kill him. Like it's him like messing with his head that to that degree. That's like what breaks Robert Pattinson's character to the point where he goes after him. Yeah, I kind of lean towards that interpretation too, that it's like, but I I also agree that it's like so hard to tell. And I think that they, that's clearly intentional. And I just think they did a great job of doing that, of like, it's just really hard to come down on one side or another. And they do that in smart ways too. Like that moment you're talking about where he misses the boat, it's just a cut. It's like a, you know, black screen. Like we know this is their last night. And then it's like cut to black. And then it's like morning up. And it's like, well, for all we know, that same device could be used for a two weeks later morning up, mm-hmm. you know, right. but we're assuming it's the next morning and the, it just didn't come today. So it's like, OK, well, we don't really know. We didn't see. But then later they do some tricky stuff where it's like, OK, well, the camera showed me one thing and now you're telling me that didn't happen. So we're in Robert Pattinson's right. shoes. Like, for instance, when Willem Dafoe destroys the dinghy boat or whatever, mm-hmm. and then he comes back, he's like, I knew you were crazy when you destroyed that dinghy boat right. just now. Yeah. And you're yeah. like looking at him. It's like so crazy looking. Yeah. You're like, oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to land on Pattinson's side, too, especially also because Dafoe talks about how scared he is of Pattinson mm. several times, especially later in the script, like has a lot of references like was sure you would kill me in my sleep, but mm. you're a good one. And and a bunch of things like that. I do think that, I don't know, I think he's like a disabled old man alone on this island with this young guy and he's like doing whatever he can to maintain power over him. Mm. Yeah. Which involves messing with his head to such a huge degree. Yeah. Who did you guys, I mean, this is almost like a cheap question and there's a right answer if you get it wrong. <laughs> Come on, guys. But who is better of the two? Who did you like more? What Willem, you, oh, you mean Willem the performance? Or Robert, yeah, the actors. 
Uh, well, I think it is a better and more varied performance by Defoe. Uh-huh. I think like the amount of stuff he gets to play, and even his commitment, I think, even exceeds Roberts down to what they're asked to do. But mm-hmm. like the fact that Defoe commits to it, that is what I would go to. Mm-hmm. But I think that Pattinson is so funny mm-hmm. in this role. Yeah, like whenever he gets talking for a long time. And his like weird accent fully reveals itself. Yeah, yeah. Only happens a couple times, but like, yeah, it is so hilarious. And this movie lets him be so tall too. And like how he uses his physicality in every mm. scene. Mm. So I think he's doing really good stuff here, but I do think Defoe is a little bit of the richer part. Sure. Mm. In it. I would have to agree. I do think Willem Dafoe is playing like many different things in this. And I think that because we are taken more into Robert Pattinson's shoes, he has given a little bit less to do by the script. Mm, Yeah. Which is not a criticism. I just think that is naturally how it goes. Like with your protagonist is going to be a little bit more blank slate, especially when it's your only other character is going to be a little bit richer right how how do you feel on this i agree i agree i liked you know and this is not to disparage pattinson because i thought he's great i thought he's really fantastic in it and also to be fair willem dafoe is a much older actor like he's been yeah. working for a lot longer it's like dude i could believe that robert pattinson would be that good when he becomes willem dafoe's age with all that experience etc mm-hmm, i loved sure. them both but willem was just like amazing he struck me as somebody who's just so in control of like the text at all times And one of the things that I've seen from him in a couple different performances that I love is he's got this really this vulnerability that can strike you as humorous, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like, for instance, the moment when he's like, you don't like my cooking, you know, or whatever. Um, You could just like read it on his face. Like there's so much like heartbreak in that moment, but it reads as funny. And I I mean, I don't think he speaks in Grand Budapest Hotel and he's still one of the best five characters in that movie. Mm. So it's like, he's just, he's just an incredible actor. I think that Robert would do it if they asked it of him, but Uh like in the movie, Defoe is the one who, gives a speech while in a grave and yeah. having like literally having dirt thrown on him. Yeah. Like thrown across his face in a scene. Yeah. Like into his mouth, which feels like honestly, maybe the craziest thing I've seen mm-hmm. like an actor do mm-hmm. the craziest, like physical thing that I have seen an actor do is probably like you could literally watching the dirt go into his mouth and his nose. Yeah. As he's continuing to speak mm-hmm. in like an unbroken two minute shot, mm-hmm. which is just an insane commitment. Truly. It hasn't even really occurred to me how that we might not be able to do MVP for this movie. Yeah. Since there that. are only two characters. Uh, true. They're both the protagonist or or right. at least one of them is the protagonist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There are, I guess there are technically four because there's the mermaid and there's Winslow. Yeah. Um, although they don't have. There's also lines. those two guys, and this would be a real hot take, but the two guys <laughs> who are leaving the island the as they're entering the island <laughs> right, at the very right. beginning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was that was MVP for me, you know. Yeah. Which, to your point, just by the way, like mm-hmm. I do, I do see vibes of like a cyclical nature in this just with that you know it's like there's these two guys and it's like what does that mean does that mean that there's always two guys on this island like Mm -hmm. working out some sort of weird thing you know yeah Um, so i do think that there's a cyclical nature and all the greek mythology has a lot of cyclical nature especially the sisyphus stuff but you know greek mythology more broadly is just like they're always like and it happens again and it happens again yeah yeah what do you think about the tentacles 
that was a huge one for me the first time I watched it. And the second time around, they weren't as big for me. But, like, I do want to know what you think of the tentacles that we see. That are up in the lighthouse that Willem yeah, Dafoe that are... is interacting with? Yeah. Don't they come out of him later, too, in a shot? Yeah, maybe so. I believe so. It's kind of hard to tell. Like, there was, like, a weird mishmash between the mermaid and the tentacles, I think, in that shot. I don't know. I really don't know. It threw me through a loop. But what do you think is happening there? Just just more broadly, what I think is that I think that sex is used as like a stand in for like desirability and, and power and privilege and like material mm-hmm. well-being. And so like that, you know, this idea of like that coveted light, the unattainable light, I think mm-hmm. it, it is closely associated with sexual gratification. Robert Pattinson is like down in the dirty shed furnace and he's doing mm-hmm. his like self gratification there. And then he walks out and immediately sees like Willem Dafoe butt naked in this like celestial like orgy with the light or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like those sexual experiences, I think, are intentionally juxtaposed for him to be like, the grass is always greener on the other side. Like, what is he getting well, yeah, and I'm yeah, not yeah. getting? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, the tentacles do also kind of strike me as sexual in nature somehow. But I also think that it's kind of reinforcing that Defoe is of the sea mm-hmm. and like belongs to the environment in a way that Pattinson does not. And I feel like a lot of the stuff is is kind of reinforcing that Pattinson is like literally fighting against the elements all the time. Mm-hmm. And Defoe is has mastered them more than he has, mm-hmm. you know. In the strict reading that Defoe is the Proteus character, those could be his own tentacles because he's like a man of the sea. That's my understanding of it. So they they could be his own. That could it could be like teasing the fact that he's Proteus and that he has this shapeshifter quality. Right, right. I'm just reading here, the octopus is often viewed as a sinister and scary creature. However, like the snake and spider, the octopus is an exemplary symbol of the unconscious psyche. Which, as a psychologist, Carl Jung, who, of course, uh, Robert Eggers is a huge fan of, Mm. constantly reminded his reader, humanity ignores at its peril. I remember thinking the first time that I saw this movie that we were going to go down into the basement of the lighthouse and see whatever was sending tentacles all the way up through the middle. That is like what I where I pictured this going at the end into like kind of full Lovecraftian horror Oh, that's a good point. It is probably also in there a lot just to be Lovecraftian. Yeah, of like, it could be like all the things it could be. I think this movie employs something which I believe is from symbolist and surrealist drama and film of that earlier period that we were talking about, like the 1890s through 20s, called The Suggestive Indefinite which is basically a signifier or like a symbol without a completely codified meaning. Mm. So it's like a thing that you're obviously like, that's a symbol, Mm. but I'm not going to fully attach it in this work to what for sure it symbolizes, or I might give you multiple different opportunities for what it could Mm -hmm. symbolize. I think that Jordan Peele does this excellently with the rabbits in Us. It's like a creepy symbol. You know it's a symbol for something, but we it's hard to tease out. And the fact that it's hard to tease out makes the whole thing even creepier. Because your mind is like spinning away, knowing that if it could only figure out the thing, it would have like some sort of power over the monster. But you'll never get there because like it, the symbols, like the math doesn't actually add up. Um, it's like an arbitrary thing. Mm. 
it's done with such craft and precision that it looks meaningful. Uh, so it's kind of like almost a red herring, like a misdirection as you're watching it. Mm. I think kind of a difference is that both this and The Witch feel like they were written to support a bunch of different readings. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. I think with the Peel movies, my suspicion is that he knows exactly what everything means in the movies. Fair. And it is sort of him teasing out mm. however much he feels is important for the audience to know. Fair. But I am sure like... I am sure that Jordan Peele's wife knows exactly what every single thing in us means. Okay. And I am not so certain if Robert Edgar's wife knows, like, because I think that these movies are more made to support a bunch of different things going on. Right. Like working on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, that usually, I would say usually bugs me, but in this case doesn't. I'm okay with multiple valid readings, just so long as all of them kind of make sense and are intentionally supported. But if it just feels like, you know, scattershot, where it's like, you decide what movie I made. It's like, I right. hate that. Right. I absolutely right. hate that. It's like, you were supposed to do some thinking. You got a big budget to pull this thing off and you just mm-hmm. put nonsense on the screen. And, you know, no, I didn't think that was the case with this. I thought it was like, there was valid interpretations, but they could go different ways. What's the HP Lovecraft thing? I know that that's a writer, but I don't know their work. I don't know any of the, references lovecraft was like a really complicated guy like kind of a very unsavory guy personally Mm. but like the vibe of his work his most famous creation was cthulhu which is a big tentacle monster Mm. so normally when you see tentacle stuff in horror it's like a reference to him okay i believe it's from like an alternate dimension too and it's like what's known as like cosmic horror because it's like aliens aliens from beyond the stars like things that we don't even we can't even like understand that are going to come here and just like completely wreck like everything on earth the lovecraft thing i guess is exactly what happens at the end of this movie which is that like you are driven to madness by seeing the monster or like whatever the horrible thing is that's happening like when the male hero of the story sees it he's driven so mad that like he just mm. dies mm. or he goes completely crazy. Interesting. Like seeing the truth, you like literally can't handle it in your brain. Uh, interesting. For instance, Bird Box. Bird Box was based on the idea of a lot of the ideas from Lovecraftian horror. Okay. Too. I didn't watch that one, but is yeah, it good? Flopper Bop? It's like so trite. It's a cool idea about the monster, but everything else in the movie you've seen in another movie better. Mm. And by the time you get to the end, you just want to smack somebody. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Speaking of by the time you get to the end, do either of you have a thought on what is in the lighthouse? Mm. Like what it is that reveals itself to him. The last shot of the movie, if you haven't seen it, is that Pattinson finally gets up to the lighthouse, which Defoe has been keeping from him the whole time. And the lighthouse like turns and opens itself. Mm -hmm. And Pattinson sees what's inside it, which we don't. And it like drives him crazy and he screams this like weird mm-hmm. digital like scream. Yeah. And the film grain like looks like a VHS like burning out. And then it just cuts to him like falling down and dead. Yeah. I mean, this may be a bit of a cop out, but I really do think that it's supposed to be insert your biggest desire, you know, at the top mm-hmm. of the lighthouse. And so it's like I think it's like intentionally they don't even they don't even try to go there. You know, I actually heard in an interview someone asked that question to the director. They actually asked, why didn't you show what's in the lighthouse? And he said, because if you saw what was in the lighthouse, the same fate would befall you, which I think (laughs) is is a way of saying, you know, whatever you 
would put at the top of that, you know, pinnacle would destroy you, you know. And I think just just a reading on it on like a maybe a psychological or a spiritual level is like idolatry, you know, just like whatever the thing that you say that I cannot exist without is the thing that mm. will undo you. And yeah, I mean, that's the definition of an idol in like Christian thinking and Jewish thinking is, you know, any created or material thing in the place of God, that only God can actually be that like source of energy and hope and faith and love and joy. If you put career or sex or money or anything else, it will literally, you'll disintegrate, you know? Wow. Wow. Because to me, it seems, it seems like either the Lovecraftian thing or just like the idea of to look upon the face of something not of this world, something be like a power beyond anything that human understanding can even handle, like the face of God or the face of an angel or the face of a monstrous alien presence from beyond the stars. I mean, whatever, whatever it might be, but I, I, Maybe you and I are saying the same thing, Levi, but hmm. I'm just couching it differently. But that something so intense, I mean, that like also reminds me of like the light show at the end of um, 2001 of Space Odyssey. You know, when they go down like the tunnel and there's like all the crazy lights for like five minutes, it's just like lights and like hmm. flashing stuff like that, like that sort of experience, so the experience of unadulterated time or reality or something of that nature. Do you guys think that Defoe is protecting him mm. from seeing it? Interesting. Considering what happens mm. when he finally does? Could be. I, or I just keeping it that. to himself. You know? I had not considered that, but I mean, it, it could be. I'd have to kind of think about it. But yeah, I, I'd always read his behavior as being like very defensive, right? Where it's like, it's mine, you know, you don't take it, whatever. Yeah, but yeah it could be. I mean, I'd be open to that reading of it. In, in a way, he does warn him that this is what happens to his prior wiki. He said yeah. he thought there was some enchantment in the light. And presumably, I don't think we're clued into that, but presumably the wiki did the same thing. Right? Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Unless I'm forgetting some crucial dialogue there. Yeah, he said he, he believed in salvation and enchantment in the night. And, you know, another thing is Willem Dafoe does actually warn him verbatim. Like, like he verbally warns him, mm-hmm. you'll be punished. That's what he says. He says you'll be punished at the very end of his dirt grave scene or whatever. Yeah. Um, so he does seem to have some information that mm-hmm. this is not good, not a good move for him. You know, to the theory that you said, Levi, that they are both the same person mm-hmm. or potentially versions of the same person. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that they both have the same name. Yeah. Watching it because he, uh, Pattinson, pretends at first that his name is something else. And then when Defoe reveals his own name, Defoe's name you see the look in Pattinson's eyes. Oh, yeah. That yeah. he has said Pattinson's real name right. is his name. Thomas, yeah. Which hasn't been revealed to Defoe yet. And, like, that is such an interesting moment. And I definitely think could also make me feel that they are the same person. Mm-hmm. Especially also with how Defoe's backstory keeps changing. Right, yeah. I hate to, like, keep pushing that metaphor or analogy on such a literal level, but I do think it just works on so many levels. Like, he confesses to himself when he gets drunk. And I feel like that works on a psychological psychological level where it's like you're suppressing mm-hmm. information, but once you get loose, you can actually, you stop lying to yourself right, and right. you tell yourself the truth for once. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think that before he goes and seizes the unseizable light at the top of the lighthouse, the metaphor works in that he's burying his own conscience, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I am pretty convinced that they're at least two sides of the same person or Mm -hmm. like a mirror image of the psyche 
So it was partially inspired by this real life incident that I remember reading about. It's the Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy. Have either of you read about this? No. It's pretty wild. So this is this is a real account of something that happened in 1801 in Wales. Now, I think Eggers even himself says that like when you read the real biographical account, it kind of sounds like a folktale. So perhaps it was embellished in some ways. But the story is that there were these two guys working on a lighthouse in Wales. They were both named Thomas Mm -hmm. and they hated each other. And it was well documented that they hated each other. And one of them dies, I think, in a storm, similar to what we see in the movie. One of them gets killed and the other one is like, I can't bury this guy or send his body out to sea because everyone knows I hated him. So Mm -hmm. I will be like framed for murder or, or accused of murder if the other guy is just dead. And, and I don't have any evidence. So um, he puts his body like in a casket he makes above ground in like the middle of the island, which breaks because of the storm. And the guy's like arm falls out. The corpse's arm falls out mm-hmm. and is like blowing in the wind and beckoning to him. Mm. So the other guy is just like sitting inside watching the arm of his dead friend beckon to him or his dead enemy beckon to him for like three days i think it is Hmm. uh and basically goes mad yeah and and the story is that when the other guys came to relieve him of duty they didn't even recognize him Hmm. like people who had known him before couldn't even tell that it was him because he had been driven so crazy by Hmm. that experience Hmm. and the other body was still there in the corpse when they came to in the uh, casket yeah wow but that was a real and i think there have i was reading there had been like other plays and i think even a movie a british movie from a few years earlier about the the same thing but that was part of the real life inspiration for it when i was out in seattle i remember taking a walk around a nature park out there and there was a lighthouse out on puget sound like up on the north end of puget sound like right off of that park and I was like thinking about how dramatic it would be to be a light keeper out there (laughs) and thinking about that. And that was probably in 2017 or 2018, like thinking about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to make a movie about somebody who is like out here during a storm or something? I mean, yeah, so it totally makes sense. It's, It's such a gripping thing of like. I guess I feel like playwrights and screenwriters are always looking for compelling reasons for small groups of people to be enclosed in a small space for like Mm. a long period of time to make something develop. Because a lot of the times you've just got to like make that pretty arbitrary. But if you're a light keeper, it's it's built in without having to come up with any weird plot extravagance, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Like the mood and the ambiance of this movie is so strong. And it's just like, it just, it seems like one, it, se- it seems like dominoes falling or something like that. Cause like one thing just leads directly to the next. It's like, ooh, lighthouse, kind of eerie. And it's like, ooh, black and white, like double eerie. It's like, ooh, it's like a story of like, you know, specters and ghosts mm-hmm. and like the, the dead souls of sailors are in the gulls and everything like that. And it's just like, mm-hmm. the, it's just a really, really strong mood that's just kind of coming together into focus. And a kind of movie slash genre, I guess, that we don't get to see a lot of, you know? Where it is more about the whole feeling it evokes rather than the any one thing that you see freaking uh-huh. you out. Uh-huh. And I did just love, talk on the technical side of things, I loved like the costuming and mm-hmm. the, the set design. Apparently they built the lighthouse. They built like all that set from scratch. That's incredible. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, that is what I read that every single building in it they built from mm-hmm. scratch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything on that island, which is just crazy. All of that weather and everything you see is pretty much all legit. Yeah. Wow. You know, definitely some stuff is them pouring water, but they said like the shot of the two of them waiting uh, for the relief boat to come that never comes. That's just like oh, a wow. real shot of them wow. standing out in a storm. That's incredible. <laughs> that's it's I mean, so wow. like windy and real. Yeah, so there's cool. like nothing altered in that shot. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> that's incredible. It really is an incredible piece of craft and an incredible movie to watch at the end of it. But you got to imagine that it's just like horrible making it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> Especially yeah. you know with that old timey technology and with um, someone as detail oriented as Eggers hmm. behind the camera. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, they were not loving every minute yeah. <laughs> of that shoot. Yeah, no. Who does this? Because plenty of people are shooting on 70 millimeter still. But who goes and shoots a movie like on this old of film at this time? Hmm. Even the other black and white films, like modern black and white films that you think of, were probably shot digitally and then edited to be black and white, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And this was actually shot on the old equipment? Yeah, this was actually shot on... Now, they were retrofitted. I don't think there are any existing, still working cameras from like the 1910s right. perfectly. But they had the lenses that yeah. they added onto modern cameras, right? Yes, and it was by the actual companies like Panavision or whatever, the actual companies mm-hmm. who made those cameras had the old versions and like reworked them into things that worked for the crew. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think the cinematographer who who did get nominated, as we said, had like a strong relationship with the camera companies and they like built these cameras for him. Wow. Out of Holy the hell. out of the cameras they had from the nineteen tens and thirties. Yeah. To like be able to work. So these are cameras that could not even capture color to right. what you were saying, Emmett. Like a lot of a lot of black and white movies are shown color and then grayscaled or desaturated or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. But uh this is yeah, this is the real deal. It gives it such a cool quality. Like the quality of the shadow in this and how they it looks like a woodcut painting or something or print, you know. It looks like that old symbolist the symbolist ink drawings and cool stuff mm. like that. Well, along with that, I I just think that it is a huge step up in filmmaking quality from The Witch. And it's all the same crew. And it's the same budget, I believe. I think The Witch is 3.5 and this is 4 million. But it just looks like The Witch at points kind of feels like, looks like a home movie that someone has like put a really creepy score on and cast really good actors in. Hmm. But like this feels so cinematic and and they make such good use of it Mm -hmm. that I was really impressed by that. Are you guys going to do coverage of The Northman when that comes out? Mm -hmm. We are. That looks pretty fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited for that. Um, And that one, I mean, the biggest thing about that is that is, I think, a 90 million budget. What? Like he's done two. And and I think that's partially because of COVID, because I read a whole article about it. that I think it was originally 60, but still he's done two 4 million budget movies. Oh, my gosh. And now has kind of been given like a blank check to make a weird. Wow viking historical movie yeah it looks bizarre but it looks great like bizarre in all the best ways and also just like unique in genre i was telling josie my wife like uh like when has the last time we saw a viking movie yeah you know i mean i know there's like viking content with like shows and stuff like that but just like a an artsy four movie theaters viking flick like i'm down for it yeah i'm my i'm a little worried that it's gonna be like 
so violent. Really? That's kind of my only fear about okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've heard some buzz from that. Was the witch that way? Was there like a lot of violence and gore in that? No, but I think that it's kind of like with the period detail, I think mm. is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be messed up. I think it's going to be deeply <laughs> upsetting. But I also. <laughs> I'm also like, I guess if you had told me about these other two movies instead of like just I watched them, then I might not have been sold on them either. But like, I'm not really sold on the Viking retelling of Hamlet. Mm. Mm. I think that this is the guy to do it. And if it's going to be cool and if I'm going to like it, it's going to be because Robert Eggers did it and Mm -hmm. put whatever cool thing that he does on it. But I think that, like, in general, I hear, like, period-accurate retelling of famous Shakespeare story, and I get worried. I think for me, it is just that I am the least interested in the Viking period of any of these three periods. Hmm. Which is why it's almost mm-hmm. sort of like an Assassin's Creed thing. Like, it does seem that way. Which yeah. period are you most into depends which game you like the most, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right, right. And right, in terms right. of, yeah, like early America Lighthouse, I'm interested in. Pilgrim era horror movie, I'm interested in. Viking stuff has not been my bag so far. Okay. <laughs> this movie could change that. It could it totally could change it. Get you on a kick of Viking stuff. Totally. Um, yeah. Oh, and I did want to mention too that for, as we were saying, as tough as it seems like an Eggers shoot is, and as much as he loves the long shots, I think that it is like cool that in the Northman, Defoe is back from this movie. Mm-hmm. All of the primary members of the witch are back in that movie as well. Mm-hmm. So clearly like for as challenging as the shoots can be, mm-hmm. I think the actors yeah. like him yeah. and are coming back to do it again, you know? Yeah. Which is awesome. Do y'all have any final thoughts about uh, this movie, The Lighthouse? We're just going to skip MVP because we'd all say The Mermaid and (laughs) then those other two guys. We already know. We already know. It's The Mermaid and those two guys at the beginning. Um, Basically the best performances ever put to film. Um, But any final thoughts on The Lighthouse before we wrap this puppy up? I didn't talk about this last week, but I had false memories of scenes in both this and the witch Mm. that were like clear memories. Oh, interesting. Which was really weird. In the witch, I remember there being a shot of you seeing the witch actually take the baby at the very beginning, which isn't in the movie. I had that in my head. And in this, I remember there being a shot of you seeing him actually in the forest when the other Winslow gets killed which mm, isn't in the movie. Uh, yeah, huh, so yeah. in both of them, I guess they're just described and I thought about those movies so much that I had, Interesting. I had made it in my brain. But in both of those, I was like waiting for those moments and they didn't come. Right. I think like the most interesting things to like think about and talk about about this movie or what is really going on. But like just watching it, I think it is really enjoyable and funny and even really relatable at times. Like I felt that the first third is kind of Reminded me a lot of like working a minimum wage job Hmm. or a high labor job. And that it's just sort of about, yeah, like doing those menial tasks and having a bad boss and like how frustrating and continual that experience could be. Hmm. And as I said, the middle act of the movie really reminded me a lot of quarantine about these two guys like stuck together and how their relationship changes and how they go so quickly from one thing to another 
and all of that just felt very accurate to me after like the last two years we've had. Hmm. And I think all of that stuff is also so like dynamic and funny to watch. So yeah, I really like watching it and like thinking about it. So yeah, good movie in my book. Yeah. You know, I agree. It's a great, great conversation piece. There's just, yeah, it's just, it seems like somewhat inexhaustible. And I am really curious to hear like, how did it strike you? It's one of those movies, which is great. Like Shakespeare has this whole quote about like art is like holds a mirror up to society. There, there is this thing where what you bring to the movie experience really determines what you take out of it. And I think this is one of those uh, experiences where and, and that mm-hmm. feels crafted and intentional. But also it's like it's beautiful because the, the, the craft is telling you less about itself and more about yourself. And, and then just just to throw in like two other random like things that I feel like have symbolic significance, which I have not decoded and I kind of don't understand. But the moment when he finds the dead gull in the cistern and it has like poisoned the water and made it like pitch black. Uh-huh. Not really sure what that's about. Haven't kind of quite figured that out. And then in the same, in a somewhat similar vein, at the very end of the movie, when he does finally get up to the lighthouse, he's like smeared in black oil in his face. And we don't see him do that. And we just like see that he has mm. done that, you know? And so like, mm. I feel like that has some visual significance, right? Is that yeah. like, for some reason, when he finally gets up there, he's like, tarred or smeared or stained or something you know mm-hmm. like and you know the the first inclination is to think that like you know it, it's like out damned spot from lady Macbeth or whatever yeah you know, yeah, this, yeah this kind of thing but I, I think i'd be interested to hear other reads on it but again in uh, just summation it's a great movie i can hardly recommend it to everybody but i think if you're like <laughs> an adventurous and curious mm-hmm. viewer and like you go in with that mindset i think there's like a lot of a lot of good stuff there so i really liked it yeah Emmett, any final thoughts? Well, I mean, just to that point about at the very end, it's like the disparity between humans being like animals of the dirt, of nature, of death, decay, sex, rot, like all the rest of that stuff that goes with it. But also like having to pull from another Shakespeare idea, like the idea of like in mind and nature, like the gods and like the angels but Mm. in body and in fate upon the earth, like the animals. And Mm. I mean, like that's the whole thing is that all religion and all the Greek mythology and all the rest of that is kind of like dancing around is that we want to aspire to this great, beautiful, pure height, like the Plato's pure world of forms almost. And yet we are bound to these earthen bodies that still have to like get old and die and poop and, have sex all the rest of right that. yeah 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 so much about bodily fluids in this yeah <laughs> yeah i mean really yeah. that really is yeah my final final thought is that robert pattinson is really looking like robert paddington in a lot of this movie when he's got the little hats he's got the bucket hat he's got mm. <laughs> the coat he's got the rain boots it's the same exact outfit remarmalade the name remarmalade the name all right, everybody, I've got a great quiz for us. I've got, I think I've got 12 movies on this list. Uh, no, it's it's only 11 movies. It's 11 movies on this list. Okay. The thing that ties them all together is that they're all going to be black and white movies. They're all going to be black and white movies from well after the period of time where black and white was the norm for movies. Um, I believe the oldest film on this list is from 1998, but no promises, but certainly all were post-70s movies, um, black and white films. 
Okay. The first film on this list is a black and white film. It is from the year of our Lord, 2021. This film is an adaptation of a famous stage play. Macbeth. That is correct. Although it is the tragedy of Macbeth, but we'll give it to you, Levi. Thank you. I did see, I did see someone point out that Chris Rock on stage at the Oscars congratulated Denzel for his role in that play, saying the name out loud Ah. mere moments before he was Ah. slapped in the face by Will Smith. So... The Scottish play. Yeah, yeah, the curse continues. Wowza. The prophecy is being fulfilled. Funny. This next film is also from 2021. Uh, it's a uh, black and white romantic drama uh, written, produced, and directed by the same person. By like a high profile sort of famous director. Written, produced, and directed by a famous actress who, in her feature directorial debut. Huh. Um, I mean, it's not The Lost Daughter, right? Because that's not black and white. I think so. By that's where I went to. Romantic drama? Romantic drama, a film that Wade really liked this year. Oh, uh, God. Did anybody else like it? <laughs> I don't know. I think people did. <laughs> film that I really like. Is the actress in it who is directing? or? Uh, I don't believe so. The big actress in it is somebody who we have talked about already as part of our main series this year. Uh, one of our main series is this year. As part of Jurassic Park? Uh, not as part of Jurassic Park. As part of a Taika movie? Yes. Is it Johansson, the main person in it? It is not, although although when you guess what it is, I feel oh, understand why I know that's this movie. So this is Passing. that's right yes rebecca hall Uh uh-huh what is she in i don't know her name um she's like bit parts in a lot of stuff but Mm -hmm. she's in like iron man 3 godzilla versus khan okay uh she was in the night house i don't know if you saw that Uh, i didn't you wouldn't have because it was a horror okay (laughs) but she was the lead of it last year and she was honestly very very good cool cool um but yeah really loved really really loved that movie all right the next movie is from 2021. It's another black and white film. It's lyrical, insightful, and something else. It stars a famous, serious actor person. I know what this movie is, but I can't think of the name of it. Uh, <laughs> it was. It's directed and written by Mike Mills. Oh, yeah. Come on, come on. That is correct. Good work, Levi. Nice. Dece, dece, dece movie. Not great, but dece. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, that is that is Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> come on, come on. Yeah. Thrilling just to see Joaquin. Yeah, Phoenix right. Yeah, I know. I a regular after guy. His Joker turn. He's like, <laughs> I think I'll just play guy who works for the New York Times. Or <laughs> this next film is a 2021 black and white wow. romantic drama. Jeez. What? Another one? Are you joking? Starring, and you're not going to be- you're uh, you're not going to believe this. It's starring Zendaya and John David Washington. Oh, oh I don't remember what that's uh, called. It's called Malcolm and Marie. That is correct, Wade. Yeah, yeah. Did you see that? I did. It wasn't. It wasn't very good. Yeah. 
Didn't look very good. <laughs> well, it's I I love both of those actors, but it's from Sam Levison, the Euphoria guy. Oh, okay. And it's basically him just like airing his grievances for an hour and a half. Cool. Oh. It's about like a famous film director who has gotten a bad review of his work. Oh. Cool. And it's him like storming <laughs> around the house, like screaming around about critics for an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That might be yeah. worth it. <laughs> You know, not all of the 2021 romantic black and white dramas can be hits. So <laughs> Fair they'll enough. just have to take the Even consolation Even on Netflix, both of those Netflix exclusives. So. The next film here is a 2020 American black and white biographical drama. It is about the making of another movie, a much older movie. Uh, Mank, Mank. That is correct, oh, Levi. Yeah. Killer work. Next film on this list, taking it back to the year 2018. Do you remember it? <laughs> this one might really be hard for y'all because I had never heard of it before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. In, in the 1950s, a music director falls in love with a singer and tries to persuade her to flee communist Poland for France. Oh, yeah. Cold War. Wow. Not a problem for Levi at all. Wow. Okay. I haven't seen like any of these movies. Like I haven't seen them. I just know that they exist. <laughs> the next film here is another Polish centric film. 2013 okay. drama. It's set in Poland in 1962 and it follows a young woman on the verge of taking the vows as a Catholic nun. I don't think I'm going to get <laughs> this one. That doesn't ring any bells. Is, is there anything notable about it? Like would we have heard of it or the directors or the actors um it won the academy award in 2015 for best foreign language film mm-hmm. becoming the first okay. polish film to do so i remember this winning in the academy awards and seeing like a black and white images of a girl trying to become a nun and being like well that looks sad let's not <laughs> i'm sure it is wonderful and i'm sure it is sad also the name of this movie is Half of the United State. The movie is Ida. I don't think Ida got it. The next movie is 2018. It's a drama film written and directed by a famous person um, who also produced, shot, and co-edited it. It is set in the early 1970s and follows the life of a housekeeper in an upper-middle-class family. Oh, is this uh, Roma? Yes, Hmm. it is. Roma by Alfonso Cuaron. Next film is a 2011 French comedy drama in the style of black and white silent films. The Artist? Yes, that is correct. Hmm. Nice. A movie which is good, but not that good. Next movie is from a friend of the pod fellow batman enthusiast the guy who when you were talking about people who just like throw together a movie and then they're like yeah it's the movie that you wanted it to be not the movie that i wanted Hmm, it to be yeah okay it's like that kind of a guy it's an (laughs) early movie from that guy is this a darren aronofsky movie it is not (laughs) a darren aronofsky movie Mm, it could be pie that's probably on the list though it's not pie and pie isn't on the list but um, this is, I think, the oldest movie. It's from 1998. Mm-hmm. It is about a young man who follows strangers for material. 
And oh, is this is this the Nolan movie? The first uh-huh. Nolan movie? Uh-huh. The Memento. following? It's just called Following, but yes, that's oh. right. Following, yeah. Memento's only got black and white flashbacks. It's not a black and white movie. Yeah, I knew I that he had one before Memento that like yeah. everyone forgets about. Yeah. I've never seen it, the following, but I've heard of it. I've heard of his like first. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. All right. I've got last one. Number 11, the tiebreaker right here. It is a 2005 film directed by not one, not two, but three legends. Frank Miller, Quentin Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez. Four rooms. Wait, is this uh, Grindhouse? Is that what it's called? No. No. It stars a lot of people. But mostly Mickey Rourke, Clive Owen, Bruce Willis, oh, Jessica Alba. Is, uh... Yeah, I thought it was Four Rooms, yeah? No, this is Sin City. Mm. Sin City. Nice. And okay. I'm seeing here that it stars Ahsoka herself, Mr. Sarah Dawson. Ooh. So... There's a reason to watch this movie. If there weren't enough already, incredible work. Wade, you have won the game for today, I'm pretty sure. Good job, good job. Levi, really a quick draw on there, a a worthy opponent. No Mm -hmm. love for Francis Ha on the list, huh? No love for Francis Ha. Or Schindler's List. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was ready to go with the Schindler's List. Well, this was Emmett's list, and those movies did not make it. Uh... (laughs) Levi, are there any plugs or any places that, you know, our wonderful listeners can get more content created by Levi? Not really, but if you want to, I have a short film that I wrote and produced and it's on YouTube. It's called The Man and His Wife. Um, And you can give it a Google and give it a watch and leave it a comment and pan it and make me feel really (laughs) self-conscious and bad. And No, it's very lovely. Oh, oh, you've seen it? I have seen it. Yeah. Well, Wade, Wade recommends it. I have, yes. Recommended by me. That in passing. Yeah, he really, those were his two favorite <laughs> films of the last quarantine era. Both, also, mine is black and white, so add it to the list. Add oh, it to Emmett's list. there we go. There we go. Oh, well, right on. That really does eat Tyson. It dovetails perfectly with everything. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you. Wonderful to see you. Listeners, 14 weeks until Jordan Peele's Nope. Can you believe it i'm already scared 14 weeks out i'm aching in my boots until then next week we've got the finale of this little mini series with the northman uh which comes out on friday so don't miss it go to watch it support your local movie theater they need you in this trying time Go watch a movie on the big screen. It really is magical. It's so much better mm. than watching it at home. I promise you. You don't like the popcorn? You don't have to get the popcorn. Okay? Don't <laughs> don't complain to me about the popcorn. I just keep having this issue of having to jump the volume up and down watching movies at home. This mm. was a real issue with Jurassic Park. And then watching this last night, like in the dialogue scenes, I'd be cranking it way up, the dinner scenes. And then we'd go back to those bong and I'd have to cut it all the way down. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't have to do that in the theater. And that's pretty nice. Yeah, that's worth a lot. I was going to try and make a joke about there being some eggers on your face, but instead I will just say stay frosted and please forgive me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week. <laughs>